So at the beginning of this season, Camille and I discovered something that was not a very pleasant discovery for us. What happened was we had a warm day. Do you remember that warm day we had, that one warm day? (laughs) We had a warm day, and as we were driving in our van, we went to turn the air conditioning on in our car. And guess what was coming out of the vents? Nice, beautiful, warm air. It was so glorious, just what we wanted. And so the inevitable came to our our minds, and that was our air conditioning is not working in our van. It's not working on my car either, but I just live with that. But... um, what we said was, okay, let's use this whole, you know, let's get it all recharged. I've never, I've never done that successfully, you know, use the Freon or whatever. I've never done it successfully. I tried it, didn't work. So we, we said to ourselves, okay, we've got to get this figured out. We can't go through a whole summer, which is, of course, like three weeks, but we can't go through a whole summer of just getting heat stroke in our car. So we did some research, and you know, our car is a 2004, it's a 2004 Honda Odyssey. We still have quite a few miles still we think we can drive in it, but we started calculating, okay, you know, what's it going to cost, and you know, you hear that getting air conditionings repaired can be upwards of $1,000 and stuff like that. So we took it into our, our the mechanic that we go to, which, which was really, really a good mechanic that we've, we've found. And uh, we were waiting for the price estimate. But, you know, as we were waiting for that, suddenly something dawned on me. And that was this. Do we really need air conditioning in our car? Now, some of you may be thinking to yourself, of course you do. How could you drive? How many of you, by the way, have a functioning air conditioning in your car? How many of you do not? All right. <laughs> Did you raise your hand? Yeah. But but I was we were I was honestly evaluating. Okay, how much is this going to cost? And is that something I really really need? What occurred to me is that we in the United States of America really have a very interesting perspective on what our needs are. Right? Like, what do we really need? Like, the thought of air conditioning to us in our car is almost like a non-negotiable. Now, of course, some of us here don't think it is. But I would beg to say that probably the reason why most of us, if we don't get air conditioning, is not because we want to be good stewards of our money so much as we just don't want to spend the money, right? But it just, it just got me to thinking, what do we spend money on? Um, I think a lot of the Christian perspective on finances are if you can get something on sale, you're being a good steward of your money. That's, that's what it is. It's like we have these twin, these twin focuses that, okay, I'm being a good steward of God's money if, one, I can buy something on sale, or two, I can get out of debt. Like, that's the Christian perspective on money. Get out of debt, 
buy things on sale. That, that's basically what our views of stewardship are. Now, all this is related to as well because I started eval- thinking back to what the things are that I've spent my money on lately. Uh, I actually do not buy much. Well, actually, what I do is I just save my money and I buy big things like, you know, drones and cameras and stuff like that. But I, I don't spend much money on things. But the latest thing that has, has me obsessed, and I'm going to blame Chrissy's brother on this, <laughs> is that I have, and some of you have already heard about this, and I, if you are in my house for very long, you'll know that I'm obsessed with this. I decided a year and a half ago that I need to go skiing in the Alps of, of France and Switzerland. That's what I decided I needed to do. And so I started looking, and her brother has a place over there. That's why I'm blaming him. He said, oh, yeah, come on over. You know, you can do it for cheap. And so, uh, so I started planning and plotting and saving. And I want to tell you that just in March, I purchased a very affordable ticket from Boston to Geneva, Switzerland. I won't tell you the price, but it was a good, good, good deal. And next March, I'll be going to, to ski in the Alps. Don't you feel sorry for me? Well, you know, it's not just skiing in the Alps. What I decided was I needed to outfit myself better in my apparel, right? And so I started looking for a new ski jacket. And I became the proud owner of a new North Face. So this is where I'll be next, uh, next March. That is right there, the... Tallest peak there is is um, Mont Blanc, Sugarloaf. Yeah, yeah, just just west of Sugar, just east of Sugarloaf. Now Mont Blanc there in, in Chamonix, France. And so, uh, but I decided I need a new. This is going to be a funny picture. Are you ready for it? Uh, this is me and my new ski jacket. This is, my, this is me and my new ski jacket. And uh, then I decided, you know, I need new ski pants. And so I said, I, like, this is so rare for me. I never, ever, ever, like, I'm not a gearhead. Like, you talk to some people, <laughs> Cameron, um, and he's not here to defend himself. But if you talk to some people, like, they know everything about every latest model of this, that, and the other. But I've been obsessed with new ski gear. And so I'm trying to find, if, you, if you're in, you know, if you have any knowledge on this, I'm trying to find some new black ski pants that are not, too like wide, you know, not too big. And so I bought some new North Face uh, Freedom ski pants. But when I received them in the mail, I felt like I was wearing a skirt. I mean, doesn't that look like it's a skirt? Yeah. So so I returned them, and I and I found some other ones. I said, oh, these ones probably will work better, and they'll be slimmer. I bought them too big still. So I sent those back. Now you know what. I've done very little reflection on whether I'm using my money wisely. I've kind of implicitly bought into the idea that, you know what, I give my 10% plus more for my offerings. I give my 10% plus more. I won't tell you how much more. But I give my 10% to God. And so the rest of it is mine. Now, the rest of it is divided among our, my family, but Camille and I allow each other to have allowance. You know, we give each other an allowance every month. And so I think to myself, that money is mine. It is mine to spend. 
And whatever my heart's desire is, then I should be able to buy whatever I want with it. But I wonder how much reflection do you and I put when it comes to the things that we buy? How much time do you actually evaluate how you're spending your money and how many of the things that we have convinced ourselves that we need do we really need? There's this thought from a gentleman that I've quoted before. His name is Walter Brueggemann. Check this out. I like the phrases he uses here. He says, Our consumer society is grounded in the generation of, what is the term he uses there? Artificial desires readily transposed into urgent needs. Oh, I need that. I need that. I need that. Of course I need air conditioning in my car. Of course I need a new car. Of course I need that house. Of course I need those new ski pants. Of course I need fill in the blank. Oh yes, of course I need these things. He says, the always emerging new desires and new needs create a restless striving that sets neighbor against neighbor in order to get ahead, to have an advantage, and to accumulate at the expense of the other. The power of such a compulsion to get, of course, negates neighborly possibility. So this, this constant striving to need more and more and more and more. And again, often it doesn't come in some big you know, European trip like some of us are going on, but sometimes it comes in just the little things that we don't even pause to think about whether we actually do need. You know, it's interesting is that in 2019, check this out, there will be $240.7 billion spent on advertising in the United States. That is more than the gross domestic product of 160 countries. And what are these advertisers, advertising, advertisers doing? They are spending all of this money to convince you and me that we need that product that they're trying to sell. And of course, if they're spending $240 billion on Advertising, that necessarily means that we're spending more than $250 billion, $40 billion on the things that they're selling, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't be a good investment for them. But you and I have been duped into this sort of middle-class American dream that there are all these things that we need to make ourselves more comfortable and better and, and, and enjoyable. Now, we're going to spend just a few seconds this morning. This is, this is the final installment of our, our series on Blessed Are the Poor. And we're going to take this an, an interesting direction this morning for the remaining few moments we have together. Because we're going to continue the examination of what Luke records on this topic. But we're going to go to the book of Acts. Okay, so we're going to, this, is, this is also Luke who's writing the book of Acts. And we're going to come to this this really strange idea, this really strange explanation as to how the early followers of Jesus live. Check this out. This is going to be crazy, okay? I'm sure some of you have read this before, but it's a very, very interesting little 
explanation as to how they live. So we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. These are the, this is speaking of the, the early followers of Jesus. Check out how Acts puts it. Luke records it. It says, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Now check this out. Neither did anyone say that the that any of the things he possessed was what? Was his own. What was that line? They said that none of the things they possessed were their own. Already, boy, that's going to kind of trouble my, my uh, capitalist soul. None of the things that they had were their own. That's going to challenge right from the very beginning. Now, I'm not going to tell you that this is prescriptive. You know what prescriptive means? Prescriptive means that it's telling us this is the way we have to do it. I'm just going to tell you what, what happened, okay? We're not going to, uh, I'm going to resist prescribing anything. But it's just, right from the beginning, it's very interesting to see how they live. The, the mentality that they had. The things that they had were not their own. They were not their possessions. Luke goes on to record, but they had what? All things in common. How many things? All things in common. In other words, they freely shared amongst one another. I think I've shared this story perhaps before, but, and I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, mention this, his name again uh, later on, but um, one of my favorite pastors that I've read a lot from. His name is Jeff Vanderstelt. He was talking about how he was trying to implement this idea within his own neighborhood. And he, he said, you know what? All the things that I own are not mine. They're God's. And so one, one day he bought a new pickup truck. He'd always wanted a new pickup truck. And, you know, he had these visions of being able to, to do whatever guys do with a pickup truck. I don't know. I'm not one of those people who needs a pickup truck. But uh, he had all these visions of, of what he would do. And he said, you know what? He, he, he remembered, this is, now this is not my truck. This is, this is God's truck. This does not belong to me. This belongs to, to God, and he can do with it what he wants. And so he decided that he was going to make his pickup truck available to everybody in the neighborhood. And, they, and he said, you know, if you need to, if you need to move something with, with my pickup truck, absolutely, here's the keys, just take it, and you can, you can use it, you know, whatever. And so one day he had a neighbor that said, hey, you know, Jeff, can I borrow your pickup truck? I need to go, you know, move some furniture from my house to there or whatever. And so he said, yeah, have at it. And so, of course, the whole time Jeff is thinking to himself, oh, boy, you know, I hope he doesn't do anything wrong to my pickup truck. So he comes back after he uses the pickup truck, and sure enough, along the whole side is this huge scratch from one end to the other. Tohu, yeah, tohu, bring it full circle, yeah. And so as Jeff is looking there at that pickup truck, he's just thinking in his mind, what did you do to my pickup truck? That's what he's thinking in his mind. And all of a sudden, he hears this little voice, and the voice says, uh, Jeff, it's in his mind, whose pickup truck is that? Whose pickup truck is that? And so he remembers, okay, this is not my pickup truck. This is, this is God's pickup truck. And so then he says to his neighbor, what would you do to God's pickup truck? <laughs> but you know, the idea that what we have is not ours. 
What we have is not ours. These are not our possessions. It's not as though God says, okay, here's the 10% that you give over to me and the other 90 is yours. I got news. According to scripture, it is all God's. It is all God's. All 100% is God's. And that 10% is simply supposed to be a reminder that it's all God's, not a division of what is his and what is ours. So check this out. What is really awesome, if you follow this text carefully, it says, but they had all things in common, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Isn't it fascinating that that sentence comes right after the previous sentence? Where it says that they, they, they didn't think they owned everything and they had all things in common and they gave witness to the power of the resurrection. Isn't there maybe a connection, just possibly a connection, that the, the power to their witness came through the behavior of how they looked at their possessions? That there was this witness to the resurrected Lord because they recognized that what they had was not their own. That our willingness to surrender over our possessions, our willingness to share those possessions, our willingness to have all things in common is actually an argument that is in favor of the resurrection. That we can live resurrected lives, that we can live together resurrected lives, and we can give powerful witness to how God has raised Jesus from the dead as you and I live this experience together. Just think about that for a second. And great grace was upon them all. Luke goes on to record. Nor was there... Now check this out. This is, this is kind of the point. Now was there anyone among them who lacked? Nobody had any lack. Nobody had any needs. For all, who were in possess- for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Boy, you, some of you, us might be squirming because this is what we like to refer to as communism. Communism. Well, that's what we think it is sometimes. I'm not proposing a political ideology or system called communism, but what would happen if God's people? I'm, I'm just. I'm not gonna like before we leave today. We're not gonna ask you to sign over the deeds to your houses and lands and cars and all that. We're not gonna do that. At least unless the Spirit really moves here this morning. But, uh, but just to plant a little seed. Now, I have witnessed stuff like this go on in Christian communities and witnessed it r- go really bad. Because there's a lot of Christian communities that I am aware of who have gone this route and they've turned into very, very abusive communities. And usually what happens, as is what happens in like the political ideology of communism is that one person gets in power and then they just, you know, rule over everybody else and say, oh yeah, it's all for everyone's common good. And then what happens is it's only for the good of the the one leader. 
But what would it look like, just again, just planting that little seed in our minds, what would it look like, and these are conversations that we can have, what would it look like if we took this idea seriously that what we own is not really ours, that it is ours, that it is God's and it is the community's. It is it has been given to us not for us to hold on to, but it's been given to us so that we can bless others through the things that God has blessed us. So I know what you're thinking right now. Oh, no, 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 not me, because I tell you what, people are just going to take advantage of the system, right? People are going to take advantage. I mean, after all, if I have $10,000 in my bank account and you have a, a bill that needs to, a, a medical bill that needs to be paid, boy, you're not going to pull your weight. You know, you're not going to keep your end of the bargain. And all I have to say is, boy, it's a good thing God does not operate on that system, is, isn't it? I mean, how many of us take advantage of the grace of God without pulling our weight, right? Doesn't the gospel teach us that God continuously gives us more and more and more. God continuously sustains us. God continuously blesses us with material means. God continuously gives us the breath to even do the things that help us earn the money to live. And yet, how often do we turn our backs on God? How often do we look the other direction? How often do we run away from God? How often do we use the very things that he blesses us with, not to bring glory and honor to him, but to bring glory and honor to ourselves or to to bring ourselves comfort? And yet, God still gives and he gives and he gives. That is the gospel message. That God, though we were poor, yet for our sakes, he became poor so that we could become rich. And so God keeps lavishing us with his grace. Now, of course, the text also says that nobody had lack, and it's not just for anyone's fancy. It's the actual needs that we have. It's not just, oh, man, I could, I could use a new you know, 62-inch TV and let's pass around the offering plate, right? That's not, that's not what happens. This is as we all have actual need. God supplies them through the body. And so what would it look like? I mean, this is a radical reshaping of the way we understand our own possessions, the way we understand our own finances. What would it look like if we were truly a community that had all things in common? Well, as I mentioned before, there's this... uh, uh, Jeff Vanderstelt, the guy I mentioned before, he, in his churches where he pastors in Washington, he has tried to promote this type of idea within the missional communities that, that are in their church. And uh, he tells a story of one particular occasion where they were um, meeting as a missional community, and they had actually a community garden that they had started in the backyard of one of their neighbors. And they needed somebody to really steward that garden and to be the watch, you know, the person overseeing it and giving it more attention and deliberate effort. And, and, you know, a lot of the people in the missional community were busy working and it kind of fell to him to, to, to really supervise it, but he wasn't doing a very good job of it because he was needing to be working on other things. And they had this one young lady in their missional community. Her name was Alyssa. 
And she was the wife of a gentleman who was in graduate school, and they had one little baby. And they looked at Alyssa, and they said, Alyssa, what, what about you tending to this garden full-time? They're using it as a blessing for the community. It's part of their mission and service and, and trying to bless those in their neighborhood and city. And she said, you know, guys, I would love, I would love to be able to do that, but we just can't afford for me to do that because I have to work to support my husband as he's in grad school and my little child. And uh, in order to pay for, you know, uh, the things that we, we need that I, I just can't do it. And so as they're sitting there at their missional community, they looked at Alyssa and they said, how much do you need a month? If you, if you could, how much would you need a month to pay the bills that you have? And she kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit and she said, well, um, probably 500 bucks. And you know, within just a few minutes, other people in the missional community, they said, okay, we'll give you this, we'll give you that. And within a few minutes, they had pledged $500 for her to be able to quit her job so that she could take care of the garden and take care of her kid. And 500 bucks a month, she was able to, they were able to raise that money amongst themselves. Now, some of them later on were kind of hemming and hawing about it. Like, well, what's in it for us? And shouldn't she be giving more to the cause than what she's doing? And, and even she, a little bit later, was like, I, I can't take this money from you guys. You guys are working hard for it. And, and how could I take this money from you? And, and Jeff said, listen, haven't you received the grace of God? Yeah? Well, that's far more costly than $500 a month. If you've received God's grace at the expense of of the life of the Son of God, which is of infinite value and expense, how come you can't accept $500 a month to do this? She said, yeah, that makes sense. I get that. Well, she went on Facebook later that day and was like just gushing. How did, you know, this is such a miracle and God is so good. And people were... were, uh, were astonished at it, and, and her husband, who was not a Christian, he couldn't get over it. And, you know, not long after that, he decided to step into life with the community, and he gave his heart to Jesus, and he was baptized. And um, at his baptism, his father and stepmother came, and they watched the baptism, and they were so impressed with what God was doing in the life of their son, and and impressed by the, the, the love of this community that they too gave their hearts to Jesus, and they were baptized a little while later. It's, it's, it's amazing what God can do when we recognize that what we own, we don't really own. That our possessions really belong to God. There would never be any of us ever in need in this room right now if you and I recognize that these resources are God's resources that we all possess collectively. You know what? If uh, Camden came home or came into the house one day and said, oh man, I just had, you know, a costly surgery and I need to pay it off. I, as their parent, as his parent, 
will not be like, ah, well, sorry, kid, you know, you're on your own. What if we looked at our church family that way? What if we looked at it as we're in this together? That we're all brothers and sisters, and our Heavenly Father is the great supplier of our need, and he has given each of us just a little portion of what we need collectively to be his people and to live a life that has no lack. What if, what if, what if that was the way it was? Again, just planting that little seed. But instead, and I guess my plane tickets have been purchased, but I'll, I'll pay for you guys to come skiing with me. I am looking for people to come with me. Uh, but instead, we spend things... We spend money on things that, do we really need them? Do we really need them? And there's no clear black and white answer. Jim and I have been wrestling with this with one another. Like, we don't need to all take vows of poverty and mooch off, you know, other people the rest of our lives. But I just want to invite you, inviting myself, two invitations. Number one, Before you purchase anything, stop and say, God, do I really need this? Okay? That's invitation number one. Invitation number two, prayerfully ask, God, what would it look like for us as a community of believers to live out that Acts 4 experience? What would it look like? So those are my two invitations this morning. God has given us all things in Christ. How can we not also give all for him?